So we'll be in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 36 today. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there. The, I think it's 870 in the Bibles uh, that are in the chairs in front of you. Um, we're kind of stepping into a, a, a context, into the middle of an event in which Jesus has just cast out a demon. Like he told a demon to go and the demon went. And so this demon was making the man mute as Jesus cast the demon out and the man begins to speak and the crowd marveled, or at least some of them did. Some, some of them were excited. The power, the miracle, it was obvious to, 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 to them. They had seen it. They, 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 they understood it, but not all of them marveled. In fact, Luke tells us there was three reactions. Some marveled, which is what we would expect. They were excited. I'm sure they gasped. They, ooh, and ah. I'm sure that they were uh, celebrating. But others, it says, denied the power, and, and they said that Jesus was doing his work by the power of the devil. It wasn't a, it wasn't a denial of the power as so much of a, a denial of the man. And others continued asking for more signs. They weren't satisfied. The first accusation undermined Jesus' integrity and undermined his trustworthiness. It wasn't that, it wasn't, no, we didn't, we saw the miracle, we saw the power, but, but we can't trust you. In fact, the reality is if their accusation was true, Jesus wasn't someone to be obeyed. He was someone to be resisted. He was someone to be rejected. And so they didn't, they didn't, they didn't deny the power. They sought to discredit the man. That was the study of our, fo- of our, that was the focus of our study last week. This week, Maybe a sign no less dangerous than that one, or maybe a reaction no less dangerous than that one is these seeking to satisfy this desire for more signs, longing for more. You just haven't done enough. We need more information. We need, we need more knowledge. We need you to do what we demand you to do so that then we can trust you. When you consider the number of miracles that Jesus had accomplished by this point, whole villages had been healed. And in those villages, when, and not, not all of them that he went into, but some of them that he would go into, whole villages would be healed and every demon-possessed person would have been freed. Oh, but we need, we need more. It didn't matter how many people or how many witnesses were affirming his identity. The voice of his heavenly father speaking from heaven, this is my son. The, 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 the confession of those closest to him who saw him behind the scenes, you are the Christ, the one sent from God. But here, we still see resistance. Not just resistance, we see that this resistance is really rejection. This, the second accusation wasn't an attack on his authenticity, wasn't a, an attack on his credibility, his trustworthiness. It's a a doubt that he's really able to accomplish what he says he's come to accomplish. If you won't trust Jesus, you've rejected Jesus. Remember the theme from last week. Remember one of the key themes that came out of his teaching was that there is no middle ground. We are either with him or we are against him. We are either blessed by Jesus or cursed apart from Jesus. We cannot be half in and half out when it comes to Jesus. Half out is just out. That is the reality that he set for us last week. 
It was a reality that, that, that he set forward for those people who were accusing him that he was doing work by, by the power of the devil. But that reality was heard by these people who were asking for a sign. But he, here again, did not leave these people asking for a sign. He didn't leave them to their lies. He didn't leave them to, to living in the blindness that they were in. He, he mercifully, mercifully, he teaches them. It's going to be direct. It's going to be a punch in the gut. But in his mercy, he teaches rather than walks away. He illuminates rather than leave them in darkness. And that's what he does in these next verses, 29 through 36. So let's read. Let's begin to read them and see what he has to say. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, so the crowds are increasing from what he's just done. As they're hearing him teach, as a result of the miracle, now hearing the teaching, the crowds are increasing. He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Really? Like just because we're asking for a, we're, we're evil, because we're asking for a sign, that's, that's an act of evil. We, just, we, we need to go ahead and just deal with this. There's a reality that we need to, to deal with this before we go any further. We were created to know God, to live in relationship to him, to know the fullness of his power, to not be doubters of it, to not be a people who resist it and reject it. We were, we were, to be, we were created to live in the fullness of his presence, to know him intimately. And here are these people... Rejecting him, resisting him. And it's really ironic when you stop and think about who these people are. Paul talks about them in Romans chapter 9 as a people who have every privilege. They've been given every privilege. They have the law, the promises of the, the patriarchs. They have all of these things happening. And Jesus, and Jesus is born to them. He's one of them. He's speaking in a language they fully understand. He's doing works that they had been expecting him to do. They have every privilege offered them, and yet here they are testing him rather than trusting him. And for that reason, Jesus confronts them. He doesn't back down. He doesn't go do another miracle. He doesn't submit to their command or their demands. He confronts them and tells them what they are doing is evil because they are evil. Right, get that, right? He didn't say your act is evil. He said you were evil. <laughs> That's pretty serious. So he points it right at them. But we have to be careful. Just because he's pointing it right at them, just because he's saying to them, you are an evil generation, doesn't pluck them out of history and demonstrate that they are more evil than any other generation that has ever lived. The truth is, this evil is the same evil that Nathan confronted when David had Uriah killed because of his adultery with Uriah's wife. This is the very same evil that angered God when the Israelites built a golden calf, constructed a golden calf that they might worship it instead of him. This is the very same evil that resulted in God flooding the world, regretting creating man. It says killing every living thing except for one man and his family. It's the very same evil that was found in the Garden of Eden that, 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 that rebelled against God's command not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's just consider Adam and Eve for just a minute. 
the original sin of eating fruit. Again, is it really that big of a problem? Murder. Okay, murder, we can settle that. That's evil, right? Like, we get that. Idolatry, building golden calves and worshiping them instead of God. That we can say, okay, that's evil. We, that's easy to agree to, but, but asking for a sign? Eating fruit? Yes, it's evil. But you've got to look a little deeper than just the action. You've got to look below the surface. Underneath eating the fruit, underneath requesting another sign, is a heart that is seeking to be its own God. Not only to live by its own authority, but to command God. Adam and Eve had been given a command, and they rejected it. They blatantly disobeyed it. They were going to live by their own authority. These people standing, asking for a sign, were seeking to tell God what he should do. God, we will tell you when you have done enough. We will tell you when you have lived up to our expectation. We will tell you when you are finally trustworthy. When you are finally believable, then we will let you know. Flips the rolls a little bit. Underneath eating fruit and asking for a sign is a heart that believes God is not doing enough for them or is keeping something from them. Eve submits to a temptation that she would be like God. And when she saw that the fruit was good for food, mm, that looks really tasty. Why wouldn't he want me to enjoy it? When she saw it was good for making her wise, why would God leave me in darkness? Why wouldn't he want me to have this wisdom? What is he keeping from me? These people asking for a sign thought they needed more. And could not be satisfied with what God had given them. What doesn't he want us to know? Wouldn't he want us to believe? Wouldn't he just be willing to do one more thing? If he was really worth trusting. So underneath eating the fruit and underneath requesting another sign is a heart that would blame God. For its own faults and failures. Adam's response when God found them in the garden. This woman you gave me. Now at first look it sounds like he's blaming Eve. Like Eve made me eat it. Really he's blaming the God who gave him the woman. This woman you gave me. You gave her to me. Had you not given her to me. I wouldn't be in this predicament right now. These people looking for a sign in the same way, rejecting Jesus because you just haven't done enough. You haven't proved yourself trustworthy. You haven't proved yourself believable. You haven't met our expectation. You need to do more. That, brothers and sisters, is an evil heart. In his letter to the Romans, Paul refers to this evil. In chapter 1, verse 21, he writes this, For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about Adam and Eve in the garden? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and thank him. Or is he talking about these Pharisees testing Jesus? Maybe we can see both represented here. With that same strain of evil that extends back in time, extends forward to us as well. See, we're no less guilty of holding out, are we? No less guilty of demanding that Jesus and demanding that God do something, making deals with God. God, if you'll just do this thing, if you'll just meet my demand, if you'll just meet my expectation, I will give my life fully to you. I will trust you completely when you do this thing, when you give me what I want, when you meet my demands, when you prove yourself Today, today, as desperately as these men and women watching Jesus cast out a demon and, and, and asking for a sign today, as desperately as they needed to hear and heed Jesus' answer, we need to hear and heed Jesus' answer. We need his answer. And mercifully, Jesus spoke these words that are coming. He speaks these words as the crowd is increasing mercifully, rather than walk away and leave them in darkness, he brings them illumination and mercifully, they were inspired by God that Luke would write them down, that we could hear them too. We need them. Oh, we need them desperately. We need to hear Jesus' answer. So let's hear it. This generation is an evil generation. Again, in verse 29, it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and the men of this generation and, and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy and your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your, bo your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright. That's when a lamp with its rays gives you light. In the life, the death, in the resurrection of Jesus, we have all the evidence necessary. Reject it and be condemned. Believe it and be blessed. This is the summation. This is the, the point of Jesus' teaching. He wants them to see something better than Jonah, something better than the queen, or something better than Solomon. More powerful. If we'll just look at it. But just let that light flow through our eyes. We will be blessed. 
Jesus' answer draws on the Old Testament scriptures and he illustrates from common knowledge the point that he makes is this. He is enough. He's more than enough. And in him we have been given all we need. In fact, there is nothing better. There is nothing more. Everything God has done before Jesus, everything he did before Jesus built to this point. Everything he's done since was built on the foundation that was laid at that point. And now, even now, he is enough. He's enough. He's more than enough. Even as we look forward to his return, his coming, his death, his resurrection, it is enough. In Jesus' perfect life, he lived with no sin. He did not commit a sin. He kept the law perfectly. He didn't only just not do the things he shouldn't have done. He actually completed the things he should have done. He was perfect. He died a sacrificial death in our place for our sins. He makes us able to stand in the presence of God. And he rose victorious. Death could not keep him. The the stone was rolled away. The, 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 The man stood up out of the grave. And the grave was found empty by his witnesses. And we have life because of that. In his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his victorious resurrection, God has given us all we need to believe. We bless it, or we believe it, and we are blessed. We reject it, and we are condemned. Condemned beyond comprehension. I wouldn't wouldn't want to sit and think about that too long blessed for those who believe blessed beyond all imagination we need to see this we need to see that Jesus isn't just saying hey I want you to just do just come on quit quit talking quit asking questions quit looking for signs quit expecting something to happen he's not condemning signs he's not commanding blind faith that's not what he's doing we need to see his teaching and understand he is the answer to these questions first jesus doesn't condemn signs and wonders he has performed all that are necessary he doesn't come out condemning the signs. In fact, if you think about where he's been, he, he, well, first he's going to reference a sign in his teaching, but think about what's just happened. What instigated the question to begin with was him per- performing a sign, casting out a demon, sending a demon away, demonstrating the power of his kingdom over the power of the, of, of the devil. His wisdom from the, from the teaching before shows us that this is a sign to demonstrate that the kingdom of God has come to them. It's a sign. Luke doesn't refer to them as signs. But read John's gospel. And over and over he calls them signs. Jesus wasn't against signs. But he's the one that determines where they go and when they happen and how they will occur. To demand another sign from him is to seek to stand in authority over him. But think about this. We don't let our children put the signs on the highway, do we? There's a reason for that. Nobody would get where they're going. Right? Just imagine your children 
at two, three, four, five, maybe even 15, 16 years old. Imagine them being the ones responsible to putting the signs on the highway. If you're expecting to get to Ozark, and that's not far away, by following signs, probably not going to make it. Not getting to the airport if you're depending on the signs. You see, the one, who, the one who, who knows the way is the one who puts the signs out. And, and so here's what's happened is they're, they're turning this up on end and they're saying, we know the way, we know how we're to get to where we're supposed to go. If you will do what we say, then we'll be able to make it. He's saying, no, you're flipping it on end. I'm the one paving the way through my life, death, and resurrection. I'm the one that knows the path. You're to follow me. Follow me. I will give you signs. I will make it known. The same is true. The same is true for him as if we would give our kids the, the responsibility. How foolish is that? The truth is, is that it wasn't that Jesus was against signs. He didn't condemn signs. In fact, in his mercy, he gave these people one more sign. He pointed to Jonah, a story they all would have known, a story they all would have understood. Jonah, you know the story. It's a false prophet, not a false prophet, a, a failing prophet, I should say. He's screwed up. God says, go preach in Nineveh. And Jonah says, ah, you know, I don't want to go there. He gets up and he runs the other direction, the opposite direction, and tries to get as far away from them as he possibly can. He seeks to hide from God. He climbs on a boat and in the middle of the sea. I love the language in the, in the scripture. I love the language. You can go back and look it up for yourself. It's Jonah chapter 1. God hurls a storm at them. It's like he threw a fast pitch and knocked them over. I love it. It shows the sovereignty of God. It shows the bigness and the power of God. And in the midst of this storm, the, the sailors are scared to death. I, they've not seen a storm like this before. They're scared. They're throwing stuff over the sides. They're like trying to lighten the boat because they know they're going to die. They're going to sink and drown. They're just convinced of it. And in the middle of it, they are like trying to figure out everything. So they're starting to pray to all these false gods, all these empty, powerless, wicked gods, the, these idols that they have created for themselves. And there is no help. And I think grasping, grasping at straws, they'd start drawing straws. They're like, all right, we've got to figure this out. Talk about uh, uh, superstition. Like, I mean, they are superstitious people. We've got to figure this out. Let's draw straws and figure out who's responsible for this. God, in his sovereignty, leaves the short straw for Jonah. He can't hide on that boat anymore. I am running from the Lord. And they're like, why would you do something so stupid? And in the midst of his confession, he realizes there is only one hope for these people. Throw me overboard so that you won't die. Now to this point, it doesn't seem like anything messianic is happening. It doesn't seem like there's any signs occurring. Closest thing we have to some sort of messianic uh, sign that could be attributed at this point is Jonah deciding to die on behalf of, so that, so that these people will live. But we know from, from Matthew's gospel that the sign Jesus was getting to was just about to happen. 
Jonah as he's sinking to the depths of the sea rather than dying at the bottom of the ocean is swallowed by a big fish and he lives there for three days and three nights. That's the sign Jesus is looking back on. And on the third day, he's vomited up on the beach and he gets up and he goes and preaches in Nineveh and people there believe and repent of their sin and they trust in Christ. See, the, the sign we know because we have the completion of the scriptures, because we have history on our side, we know the sign is pointing to the time where Jesus will die. And on the third day, he will be raised. See, he's not against signs. But he knows these people will be standing in some place at some point hearing the story of this man who is crucified, who is risen and they will be forced to choose. Will I believe or will I reject? If they reject that sign, there is no matter, doesn't matter how many people he heals, it doesn't matter how many demons he casts out, doesn't matter how many multitudes he feeds with little to no food. If they will not believe in his death and in his resurrection, there is no hope for them. I appreciate David Gooding's words here and his commentary on this passage. He observes this. The fact is that these people who demanded another sign would not have been convinced by it or by any number of signs. Their seeking of a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe if only adequate evidence were provided, but a rationalizing of their unwillingness to believe the perfectly adequate evidence they already had. They were already rejecting. And Jesus tells us in John 3 that if you reject me, you are already condemned. What would they do when they found him risen? Dead, but alive. Would they believe or would they reject? Jesus doesn't condemn signs, but he demands and he stands in authority over where the signs will be placed and what the signs will be. What will we do with the signs he gave us? Jesus doesn't command us to believe blindly. He has provided all the evidence necessary. Jesus isn't anti-evidence. Again, drawing from the Old Testament scriptures, he points to the Queen of Sheba. You can read about her in 1 Kings 10. Let me summarize it for you. She is sitting at her palace and hearing all of these stories about a, a man named Solomon, a king. Oh, this, this, this Solomon, man, he's so wise. He knows so much. He understands so much. He's so rich and he's so powerful. And she's like, don't believe it unless I see it. She might be from Missouri. Show me state, you know. Got to see it. So she gets up and she goes to see Solomon. I love the way it describes her. First, first Kings 10, you can read it. It, it, it describes this, this point where she has asked her questions and he has answered everyone. She has seen his wisdom. She has experienced it. She has seen his power and authority over his kingdom. And she has seen the, 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 the sacrifices being offered to God. And the scripture says that she is out of breath. Like she's got nothing else to ask. She exhausted herself seeking answers. 
And then she responds to Solomon by saying, now that I've seen it, I believe it. See, Jesus isn't anti-evidence. He's referencing this to, to point us to ask the questions. He's not asking you to believe blindly. Blind faith is not really the faith of the Bible. He is saying, look at me. Look at me. She, she had Solomon, and she went to him, and she believed what was going on because of Solomon, but something greater than Solomon is here. Look at me. My perfect life. My sacrificial death that is coming and the victorious resurrection that will follow. Look at me. What more could you expect? What more evidence do you need? There has been more than enough provided. And the truth is, there's really no more evidence that could be provided. If you're going to reject our risen Savior, Nothing else to tell you. I referred just a bit ago to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Let me give you just a bit of context around that, that verse, and I, th I think this will fill this out just a little bit better. I think it will illustrate it a little more fully. Romans 1, 18 through 25, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God has made himself known. He has provided the evidence. People have been able to see him and know him. His eternal attributes have been made evident. He has been seen in this world, but people still reject him. They do not honor him as God, nor do they live in gratitude towards him as God. Because they've rejected, because they've rejected all the evidence that they determined that they need more, they now stand in darkness. Because they do, they are without excuse. This has been made no more clear than Jesus standing on the earth, God in flesh, dwelling among us. Jesus isn't anti-evidence. But when the evidence that's been provided is rejected, the fault is not on the person that's providing the evidence. The responsibility lays with the people who reject it. It leads us to a third perspective that I'd like you to see here today. Jesus can't be blamed if we reject the truth. He's made sure it is plain for all to see. Jesus illustrates the truths from Scripture 
with a parable that, that would be common knowledge. No one puts a lamp under a bed or a pedestal. I can't remember exactly which word he uses in this, in this moment, but, but nobody hides the light that they light, right? That's what he's getting at. He's saying that nobody lights a light and then puts it under a basket or in a cellar, but on a stand, they put it on a pedestal so that, that those who enter can see the light, so that it illuminates. In this illustration, Jesus is the light. God didn't send his son so that we wouldn't be able to see. God didn't send his son to hide himself from humanity. God sent his son so that anyone who walked into the room would be able to see him and enjoy the light to be benefited and blessed by the light. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He's revealed himself. He has shown himself. He has given us revelation by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance. This is Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Jesus Christ, God has provided us all the necessary evidence. He has shown his light as brightly into the world as it would shine. Well, we're, we're not playing with a little, little kid's flashlight, right? This is a high beam intensity of God's glory shining through. And anyone who will walk in, anyone who will walk in and look at Jesus... They have the opportunity to see all the evidence they ever need to see. They will either see it with their good eyes, or they'll be closing their eyes to it, rejecting it, or they're blind. I appreciate John MacArthur's perspective here. He says the problem was not a lack of light, but a lack of sight. Whether they refuse to see or they're just incapable in their fallen sinful nature to see, they just couldn't see. But they stand responsible because God has not hidden himself from man. And the truth is Jesus tells us this because there is nothing more to demand from him. There is nothing God has held back. And if we reject, we are the ones to blame it isn't that Jesus fails. It isn't that the gospel fails. But we reject him. And we reject his truth. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have all the evidence necessary. Reject it and be condemned. Or believe it and be blessed. Blessed beyond all imagination. As we close this morning, I don't want you to miss the warnings and the promise. Reject and stand condemned. Stand condemned by the darkness of your own soul. Because if the light is not in you, the darkness will be evident. The evil heart will, will, will show itself. We don't sin 
and become sinners. We don't do evil and become evil. We can't help but do evil because we are evil. That's why Jesus was so quick to confront them with this evil. He needed them to see this evil act indicated not just an evil act. It, con- it, 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 it confirmed an evil heart. And the queen of Sheba, who sought out the evidence, who looked at it and couldn't help but believe, was going to stand at the end and condemn them for rejecting the truth. The people of Nineveh, a city that was known for its paganness, for for its lostness, for its evilness, is going to stand in, in the end and it's going to condemn those who reject Christ I don't know exactly what's in the hearts of every person in this room. I'm glad that I don't. But we live in a city that's full of Phariseeism, a dependence on tradition and a dependence on religion, a dependence on self-righteousness. That's the very same evil that tested Christ and said, if you'll do more, then I'll believe you're trustworthy. What are you holding back? What are you not giving up? What are you demanding of Christ? Let me me just encourage you as graciously and as gently as I can to confront you in the midst of that lie and shine a little light into your darkness. That is evil. He doesn't owe you anything. He has proven himself and he commands you now to believe. If you will not trust him, you have rejected him. And if you have rejected him, you are condemned. Repent, repent, and believe. But I think probably most of the people sitting in this room are people who both believed it. I think probably most of the people sitting in this room have trusted Christ. But in some way, we are not looking fully upon the Christ. We are allowing our lives to be influenced by a world that's filled with darkness. Let me me encourage you, let me plead with you as one who desperately cares about your soul and the peace that passes understanding. I long for you to enjoy it. Our world does not long for us to see Jesus. Our world does not long to to bring illumination. So while we're filling our minds with what pipes into our living rooms, through our televisions, through our radios, and through our news feeds, we are being influenced by darkness. If you are filled with doubt, look at Jesus. If you are wondering if he loves you, look at his cross. If you wonder if he is powerful enough, consider his resurrection. He 
is alive. And he says, believe in me. And when you do, to your faith will be added strength and godliness. You will be grown into the image of our Christ and your heart will be filled. You will be blessed beyond all imagination. Believe in him. Continue believing in him. Let's pray. Father, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Teach us, God, these words I've spoken, they are words that bounce off of eardrums, but please, Spirit, penetrate our hearts. Show us the wickedness that continues to reside there that we might walk in repentance. That we might see light in the midst of our darkness. That, that, that our lives would be fully informed by the light that would chase away every ounce of shadow within us. We need you to do these things. We ask you to do these things. Search us. Search us. Know our hearts and lead us in the way everlasting. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.